Hi, and welcome to Social Work Spotlight, where I showcase different areas of the profession each episode. I'm your host, Yasmeen McKee-Wright, and today's guest is Sophie. Sophie completed her Bachelor of Social Work at the University of New South Wales in 2013. For the past seven years, she has worked for New South Wales Health in crisis settings as a hospital social worker, firstly at an inner city emergency department, and in recent years as the intake worker at a sexual assault service. Sophie's day-to-day work includes psychosocial assessment, triage and crisis response, risk assessment, safety planning, and coordination of forensic medical and general medical responses to adults and children impacted by sexual assault and management of acute and non-acute referrals to the service. Her passion for working in crisis settings with vulnerable clients who live with complex trauma has informed her specialty areas, including assessment and coordination of crisis responses to clients experiencing violence, abuse and neglect, including sexual assault, domestic violence and child protection issues, and trauma-informed counselling intervention, acute psychosocial responses to sudden death and violent trauma-related illness, grief and bereavement and domestic and family violence risk assessment and safety planning. Over the years, Sophie has developed a non-clinical portfolio in professional education and training in the violence, abuse and neglect space, and has recently completed quality improvement projects around improving clinical responses to adults abused as children and streamlining interagency pathways to the recent expansion of joint referral unit criteria for child sexual assault matters. So firstly, thank you so much, Sophie, for coming on to the podcast. It's wonderful having you here. No problem. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Can you tell me when you started working as a social worker and why you chose this career? So I first started in January uh, 2014, and I guess I came to the profession initially um, when I first applied. I did my study as a mature age student. I actually chose social work second (laughs) on my list of preferences. I did a bridging course um, at UNSW and um, I was very certain that I wanted to be a teacher and that was my path. Um, I'd worked in early childhood for a number of years before that and when I got my acceptance letter and I didn't get into teaching and I got into social work, I was like, no, (laughs) what is this social work? (laughs) I don't even know what that is. So I kind of collected myself, my, you know, 21-year-old self (laughs) and Mm -hmm. decided that, look, I've just got to throw my, you know, head into it and do as well as I can to transfer into teaching. So off I went to uni and Funnily enough, within two weeks, I think, and we were only really in the intro stages of a lot of the, you know, lectures and tutorials, I was just like gobsmacked by the fact they basically created a career path to just suit my personality and ethics and values down to a T. So teaching was out and social work was in and I, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I, yeah, I just loved it. Like really from the very get go just that I guess as a profession what it was presented to me really resonated and yeah I loved it like I, I loved uni I loved the degree um, I liked the subjects obviously there's a few subjects that we all don't like like statistics and research and things like that or people like myself that are more <laughs> more practical but um yeah I loved it so I you know flew through the 
degree, albeit with the same challenges as I think a lot of social work students have, unpaid long pracs and working multiple jobs to support myself and, you know, all of those things that come along with the the social work territory. But yeah, I was really fortunate at the end of my degree. I applied for a couple of different jobs, really didn't know exactly. I think we, like I had a a pipe dream (laughs) about the type of social work I wanted to do which was working with Indigenous youth. That was where I felt my niche was going to be in community work. But I did my fourth year placement in a hospital and I really, really enjoyed it. I really liked the structure. I liked the diversity of the work. My time was split through different clinical areas. So I was working predominantly in aged care rehab, which was really, really good, I think, in terms of just as a student honing your psychosocial assessment, um, but also dealing with issues like grief and loss and, you know, families and things like that. I was really lucky. We had a really supportive supervisor and um, I really enjoyed that. But the other component, I guess, of the placement was um, I did a little bit of a mixed bag. (laughs) Um, I worked in the spinal unit for a little while um, and a little bit in cardiothoracic, but ended up, I guess, for the last few months of it working in emergency one day a week, which I think was where my true love was born (laughs) Um, in crisis work. I just, I loved going to ED. I loved the... I guess, the unexpected nature of the work and the complexity of it, the high-paced, high-pressure. Yeah, like, I, you know, I just found it so interesting and I found this real space of value for the social worker to make a real difference to these people kind of interacting with the health system in these horrible situations. So, yeah, it was very unexpected that I enjoyed that part of it so much. Yeah, I think that kind of inadvertently led me to my next job, my my first proper full-time social work job. I had a crack and applied for a couple of jobs and one of them was in a hospital. So, and I ended up getting that job full-time. So that's when I started in 2014, in the early part of the year. That's really interesting when you say you went into social work thinking you were going to be working in community and neither of your placements were in community. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sorry, my first placement was in, um, I was allocated to work at the PCYC, actually, uh, which was more of a community role. But it, uh, I entered that organisation in a kind of a, a state of chaos, I think, um, in terms of where the organisation was at, which I think, in hindsight, taught me a lot about dealing with systems and bureaucracy later in my career, which was this invaluable lesson that I got really early on. So part of that work was supervising a homework program and a vacation care program with a police officer that, you know, we were dealing with a very vulnerable group of young Aboriginal kids. And But I think the kids and the, the vulnerability, so to speak, was the easy part of the work because they were just these amazing young people. They made it 100% worthwhile going in every day but it was actually the bureaucracy and the organization and what was happening there that made it very very challenging and I think it just you know gives you some insight into how difficult it is as a client you know accessing a service sometimes when the service is going through a flux and a state of change having someone to advocate for you and navigate the systems is I think half the battle 
these days. We're very technology focused and um, it's difficult when you don't have all the resources available to you that, you know, a lot of other people do. So, mm. yeah. It would have been an interesting learning opportunity as such a young yeah. potential social worker, like an up and coming, but at the same time, yeah, like really difficult for you to probably get your head around and think, yeah. you know, I'm just a small fish in this <laughs> large ocean. How do I kind of make sense of this? Yeah, I think, you know, you've got all the expectations of the university and, um, you know, you want to be ticking the boxes and, and doing well and all of those things in terms of your study, but also you're starting to shape and form your practice values and, and ethics and find your which wavelengths you at which your personal and professional boundaries kind of intersect and things like that. So it was interesting, but I think, yeah, as I said, I think it just taught me a lot of a lot of lessons and I had to really make a decision about how I was going to deal with that type of organisational politics and challenges because they're everywhere. They're in all of our, it doesn't matter if you're a social worker or a, you know, a doctor or, you know, whatever your profession is, a teacher, those politics are in every workplace. And if you can find your space and your, you know, way that you're going to deal with that stuff early on, I think it definitely makes things easier. <laughs> Was there a point in either your practical sessions or when you'd started working in the hospital where you really felt like this was the best fit for you? I think initially I was absolutely, like when I got the job working in the hospital out of uni, it was, I was, the position was an after hours and extended hours weekend position, predominantly in the emergency department. And I think I was a bit shell-shocked, to be honest. I was like, one couldn't believe that they'd given me the job. <laughs> I felt like I had a bit of imposter syndrome going on. Um, but I was very determined to prove that I deserved to be there um, and that I could do the work because I was really interested in it. And I think probably for six months, I felt like I was, in terms of my professional self, I was very quiet and observant and I just watched all the dynamics and the types of patients that were coming through and what cohorts we had and, you know, where I needed to upskill and expand my knowledge in particular areas. And I think there was a, a moment, and I actually wrote a story about it. <laughs> Interestingly, I should have um, found it's It's deep down in a hard drive somewhere, but there was a, so I'd kind of been shadowing and I, you know, I'd, gone off and done my my own assessments and things like that for the first couple of months but there was a I guess the big part of that work is the major traumas that come in and it was the first one that I did by myself where I was a man that had come in with some heart issues and chest pain and he was he was awake and sitting in a resource bay with his son in his mid-20s I think sitting beside him and I suddenly remember the director of the emergency department happened to be in the ED that day and I looked up and he was just suddenly flapping and, you know, buzzers were going off and staff were running from different corners of the ED and this man had had a cardiac arrest in front of us um, and just hit the deck. And his son was just still sitting there going, shit, <laughs> um, you know, what's happening? And I, I guess at that point I was like, well, this is, why I'm here and, and I um, you know went and got the sun and then started doing the psychosocial and the crisis intervention um, while they were re, you know doing a full resus um, on the father and it was really interesting there were just so many layers like that was what it looked like but I felt like time slowed down 
weirdly in that moment and I just knew exactly where I needed to be what I needed to do, what I needed to say, and how I could contain and support this young man while his father was um, having this major, you know, health event. Yeah, it went on for hours and hours, you know, contacting different family and getting a good picture about, you know, what the support network looked like and just practical things as well um, in terms of supporting many, many conversations with different surgeons and doctors and all that kind of thing yeah it was amazing and I felt like um, although it was you know obviously a horrific situation there was real value and purpose and and you could see like that it made a difference to his experience of the hospital and, and what was happening at that time and I found out later on that his dad survived yeah I think he actually went through to rehab um, at that hospital all the way through and yeah, he survived and the family, you know, soldiered on and did their thing. But um, it was a very long, you know, journey that they had in the hospital. I think it was months and months. But just to be there at that critical time to hold the family, so to speak, and set them on that trajectory was amazing. And I think at that point I was pretty sold on <laughs> that type of work. And I think felt like it was a good fit for me. Um, it's I don't think it's like anything not everything is for everyone and I felt really fortunate very lucky that I found something that seemed to fit well with me. It sounds like your intervention with him would have set the tone for the rest of his admission to hospital and probably helped him and his family understand what the social worker could assist with. Yeah, yeah, I think social work's a bit of a um, an enigma. People are a bit like, oh, what does the social worker do? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think when they have that contact with a social worker in a very, you know, high-pressure ED situation like that, as you say, you know, we know that they're going to be in contact with multiple social workers that are going to be critical in terms of their, you know, psychosocial well-being and their experience in hospital and out of the hospital as well. Um, and can we look at that whole picture of the person? So, yeah, I think I took great responsibility almost in making sure that people, you know, had a good experience and felt supported and heard and had a, at least an opportunity to access the social worker and, and our resources and skills if they needed that at that point. Um, in time. Mm -hmm. mm. I think also the first few months while you were there, you would have been sussing out the rest of the team and figuring out <laughs> who was who and, and yeah. what the lay of the land was and what yeah. you were capable of within that yes. sphere. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been really important, especially if you were in a situation where you were by yourself, there wasn't another social worker around for many, many hours and you kind of just had to fit in and, and kind of Run, yeah, run yeah, definitely. I think that sussing out that culture and where you're going to fit in, you know, you can have all the skills and knowledge as a social worker in the world, but if you don't um, and can't kind of navigate a, a team with lots of competing priorities and opinions, I think, you know, you're kind of a shot duck, to be honest, in a health system. It's, I think I just really observed, you know, what everyone's roles were and their personalities and, you know, found a little, a niche where I could fit in with that and do my best work as a social worker and advocate for the clients. But also, I guess, you know, it's that communication stuff, learning to agree to disagree on things and know where you need to push or where you need to step back. And yeah, I think that first six months was critical in terms of 
observing those things and finding you know my niche in terms of where I was going to fit in that bigger multidisciplinary team so yeah and what sort of support did you need working after hours in such a busy emergency department it's a good question it would have been I guess I think I was lucky that the manager of the social work department was quite okay in the beginning, like, you know, knowing that I was new and if I had questions specifically that I could call her, you know, really day or night, which I did on occasion when there were things that cropped up where I didn't didn't really know, you know, what to do or just needed some clarification. And I think mostly, funnily enough, the times where you, you know, sit with the seeds of doubt are more... I think in most of the situations where I called for for help, it was just I just needed reassurance that I was doing the right thing because it was you know pretty full on. Fifty percent of my shifts were evening shifts, so that meant working till ten thirty every second weekend and half of the work week. But uh, I think you know once my confidence built and my knowledge of the systems and referral pathways built um, and also my trust of the team that I was working with the multidisciplinary team and also their trust of me I relied on them like they were my support network in terms of you know putting together our plans crisis interventions for patients but um, the after hours managers actually were an amazing source of support too we really had to work as a team for some really challenging um, situations and multiple of them at one time so a lot of communication with them and just relying on that support of the team around me to be able to to get through it and um, to do that work yeah because sometimes it's not necessarily intuitive it's yeah there are a lot of policies around sudden death and funerals and that sort of thing that you don't really think about until you're in that scenario and you just need to know because it's a policy it's a legislative thing yeah exactly I think you know and the team looked to you to know a lot of that stuff so there was certainly you know a lot of reading you know policy and death and dying and organ donation and knowing your stuff really around that and I guess clarifying because it does have legal implications um even the coroner's stuff with the sudden death you know you want to be making sure that when you're dealing with the police that you've got you know all your your boxes ticked and you're doing the best by the patient and the family as well and and supporting and protecting them in that system again but yeah so I think it just it's like anything it just took time to um and I think even you know after four or five years, I'd still have my little go-to checklist if I needed to <laughs> double-check anything or it was a particularly complicated case. You just, you know, refer to your little secret squirrel book. <laughs> yeah. Did your role change at all in those years that you were there? I think fundamentally it was the same. However, um, like at its core um, in terms of the social work skills that were required but certainly the what the role looked like when I started changed quite significantly in that the hospital went through a lot of change and um, organizational change and restructure and things like that so staffing was changed um, and that extended hours role became reduced so we used to cover from seven eight o'clock in the morning to ten thirty at night seven days a week and the on-call service would kick in for that gap throughout the evening and we didn't rely on it 
so much because a lot of uh, I mean we didn't get called in a lot um, at that point because a lot of you know having someone there already to deal with a trauma that's come in at eight that can go for hours you kind of the interventions occurred and it would just be handed over to the next day but yeah the work definitely I think we had less essentially it was working longer hours expectations around the same you know level and volume of work but with probably less staffing capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also there was a role that we had that, you know, ran alongside the AD social work role, which was post-mortem coordination, which was a a role where it's a non-coronial post-mortem, which generally applies to people that have died normally where they've had a, a, some sort of transplant because it was a big transplanting hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the medical teams, you know, want to um, do a non-coronial post-mortem to look at, I guess, to the future for technology and research and how those different transplanted organs or devices that were used to prolong that person's life could be used to their most benefit in the future in terms of medical advancement. And often families would want to know too. It was more often than not, I would say, of the time the families were consenting um, of that because, you know, it's a long, long journey being a family member of a transplant patient. So you want to know that you're doing everything you can, I think, to pay it forward and create a good outcome perhaps for another person, another family. I guess the social work role in that was to facilitate the signing of that paperwork by the family and the facilitation of the conversations between the doctors and the families which was quite challenging on top of, you know, the normal ED, domestic violence, stabbing, cardiac arrest, homelessness, mental illness, (laughs) you know, the list goes on. So you're just constantly re-triaging throughout the day, depending on the referrals that came in. So we eventually changed that role with the postmortem coordination and it sat with the medical teams. So we, um, I think maybe a couple of years into the job, a few things changed and we transferred that component of the work to the doctors, which was a relief, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> overall. Were you still involved in any of those conversations though? Occasionally, yeah. I think more so they were looking at the team social worker, which I think was, you know, in terms of continuity for the family, a much better option. The social worker that they'd had a long-term relationship with, that they'd been through, you know, the throes of the transplant and illness and lots of different things, uh, they had a really good rapport with that social worker and often they would then support that conversation. It was just, I guess, in the absence of them being around, we would definitely step in being that more extended hours team and sometimes being there, you know, obviously... Uh, we covered weekends, so we would step into those conversations. But I think it sat better, you know, being with the person and the staff member that had that relationship with them longer term. It's interesting what you say about triaging, because I know the emergency department could be quite a transient space. Yeah. So you really would have had to figure out what your priorities were and, mm. you know, who's likely to leave before you get a chance to see them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I think... I used to kind of describe it as um, sitting a sieve on the top of your head and throwing all the referrals in and shaking it and really drilling down to who like who needs to be seen right now. Like, And I guess my kind of matrix for working things out was always based on safety and risk. First and foremost, I think child protection, DV, you know, sudden death or violent death, 
issues always were up there too. And just, I guess, really, again, like relying on the relationships of the team, being a really good communicator and being able to, you know, let your different medical teams and and nursing cohorts know like where you are, what you're doing, Um, you're kind of doing things on the fly, trying to be everywhere at once. But yeah, the triaging, like, although it's it's really, it could be really difficult and challenging, um, you know, I think as a social worker, we want to do everything for everyone, you know, all things to all people if you can, but that's not practical um, in a crisis setting and really looking at quickly assessing um, individual cases and looking at where you can spread your skills and knowledge and hold the families and the clients that need it the most at that time was part of the challenge and the, the skill set of the job, I guess. And given that you would have carried one, sometimes two pages at all time, how did you kind of break up your work day and make it possible <laughs> to get a break in between all that? Yeah, I'll be the first to admit that my <laughs> self-care practices at work in that respect were pretty crappy from the beginning. I think as you become more experienced and move through your career, you move away from that expectation that pressure of being new and wanting to you know please everyone and get everything done and you I think learn better boundaries around the importance of having an actual lunch break and leaving the emergency department or the work setting whether it's having a walk around the block or going for a quick coffee Um, I think there's this churn that happens sometimes in hospital work particularly where it's you know but I can't I can't do it I've got to got to get it done got to get it done there's always more I can't wait till the next day kind of work. And I guess there is an element of that. It is difficult with crisis work. It's, you know, it is a case where you can't really walk out of a family meeting, you know, when they're being told that it's an end of life situation. You've got to, you know, you have to kind of flex around the work in in some ways. But I think, you know, I know I ate a lot of lunch, (laughs) a lot of lunches in the ED. But as time went on, I think, and and I know now even in my current job, which is another crisis job. <laughs> I'm a lot better at putting boundaries on that workday and I yeah bring my breakfast and lunch to work and enjoy stepping out even if it's for 15 or 20 minutes to just sit outside or have a stretch whatever it may be but I know certainly in that job I can't say that I was great at lunch breaks and I think often it was you know, seniors and supervisors that would be like, have you had a break? Have you eaten lunch? Or I'd be eating it at three o'clock in the afternoon. So don't do that, kids at home. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's a terrible habit. Um, And it's, um, you might think that it's easy to break, but once you start those (laughs) bad habits. um, You're setting expectations. Exactly. And, And I think, you know, yeah, you think, oh, you know, it's just once, it's just, you know, it was just Monday, it was just Tuesday, but suddenly <laughs> it becomes every day and you're doing, you know, you're getting paid for, you know, like whatever amount of hours you're working, but actually, you know, you're doing additional hours to that because you're not having a break and you need it to just recalibrate and particularly <laughs> slap myself on the wrist in crisis work where you are dealing with such, you know, high acuity emotional work you need it to just keep yourself sane really keep yourself healthy and in public health settings there's also 
I think a real need to demonstrate what the demand is and yeah. I know there's an impact on funding but just being able to show sometimes we don't have enough resources and if we're stretching ourselves too much we're not indicating yeah. that at all we're, we're showing that we're yeah. managing even if we're stretched. Exactly. And I think just comes with the territory of social work where dynamic, adaptable, flexible, creative problem solvers, and we do want the best for our clients. And when there's you know staffing issues and funding gaps and resourcing issues, I think we're the, the best at, you know, we, co- we cover the gap, we stretch ourselves that little bit further, we find that little extra mile that we can go and I think on one hand, it's testament to the flexibility and the dynamic nature of the profession and the people that do the work, but also it's a double-edged sword because it it leads to burnout, you know, some very unhealthy work habits um, and, you know, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Mm. And after working at the hospital, you had quite a substantial change environmental and and work-wise. What are you doing at the moment? Yeah. So I decided it was time to wrap that role up for multiple reasons. I think that I had probably gone as far as I could go in that position. It was a one-two role and I definitely felt like um, I'd done you know, a bit of QI and I was doing a lot of education in the hospital setting, particularly around crisis intervention, domestic violence, and sat on a few different committees and and I really had started to develop you know I I guess a subset of specialist knowledge in domestic violence and um, violence abuse and neglect child protection stuff as well which I was very interested in and yeah I think it was just time for me to look for um, a level three job and push myself professionally that little bit further and also I was living in Sydney and a lot of my family live up on the mid north and far north coast of New South Wales and I miss them desperately so it was time for a bit of a you know a sea change and a change of pace Um, so I moved up the coast um, and without a job at the time I just decided to have a little bit of time off to decompress from that work and I booked a trip to Mexico and did a few fun, fabulous things. I worked in a bar for a little while, which was fun. And I think I just needed to take care of myself for a little while. I think I'll be the first one to admit that I was definitely burnt out and I needed a rest and also I needed time to move (laughs) and go on my fabulous holiday. And yeah, I just really wanted to take my time. um, And I guess I was fortunate that I was able to work, you know, in a completely different profession, um, just for a couple of months to keep the financial wheels ticking over to just suss out what was around in this area and what other opportunities were available. And as it happened, I, (laughs) I saw a job advertised for New South Wales Health job working for a sexual assault service. And I thought, I think I can do that. (laughs) And it was a level three job. So I actually applied for it. And in true unorthodox style, I actually was on my holiday in Mexico when um, I got the correspondence via email saying that they would like to offer me an interview. So I um, did that on an island off the east coast of Mexico (laughs) on a dodgy Skype connection. And... (laughs) I think I had my phone propped up on a bag that was on top of an upturned bin that was sitting on a hotel room (laughs) desk (laughs) with some really classy classy (laughs) Studio 54 wallpaper happening in the background. But, um, yeah, like like I just felt 
it was, again, like I felt really fortunate that from the outset, even just the email correspondence that I'd had with the manager there, just I just knew I think I had a really good feeling and really good, honest communication. And I thought, you know what, even if this interview doesn't work out, I think there's a future for me in this service somewhere, whether it be this job or another. And I think from previous experience as well, you just never know with an interview. You can think you've nailed it or that you're a shoe-in and I think that is the biggest mistake that you can make. I think I just kind of approach everything, always prepare and and study for an interview, study the organisation, contact the contact person for the job. Um, They're just key things um, because you start building a professional relationship with whoever is advertising the job from the moment you do those things and it gives you an edge, I think. But you just never know how the cookie's going to crumble. So um, I just, um, yeah, did my prep in my little hotel room, had my my um, little notebook and, yeah, I was, you know, just pretty relaxed because I was on holidays. But also I really wanted the job. So, yeah, I was lucky that it went well and they offered me the job a couple of days later. So celebrated with a margarita in Mexico and got that job. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a little bit of time when I got back from the holiday to just sort out my affairs and yeah I I started that job um, and I guess again luckily for me because there's different facets of a sexual assault service core component of it is counselling like mid-term counselling a lot of court support and things like that supporting forensic medicals but my particular role was doing the intake which is the crisis component of it so it's all the triage assessment day-to-day inquiries that come through in very, very high volume at this particular service across two different districts for health. So again, it was just a level up in terms of my (laughs) triaging and I guess time management skills, but um, it's just, it's been a amazing opportunity Um, I've done, I've kind of just rounded out the second QI project that I've worked on since I've been there. Again, the organisation is going through a bit of change at the moment, so that seems to be my (laughs) MO at different workplaces, I think, coming to them when they're going through change. But, yeah, it's been really, really great supportive team and, yeah, I've really enjoyed the work. I've learned a lot about the legal system and different aspects of um, trauma counselling that I, yeah, I'm really enjoying. So I've just wrapped up for a little while to go on some maternity leave (laughs) but yeah I'm really enjoying it and I think starting out in that crisis field and then you know finding that I was really interested in working with violence abuse and neglect more specifically perhaps in a um, I really got a lot from the education work that I did um, in that, working with doctors and nurses and, you know, multidisciplinary teams around our responses to to van or violence, abuse and neglect um, in in health and in hospitals. Um, I'm really passionate about that work. So coming into a van service was a really great fit for me. Um, And there's different opportunities professionally there that I think um, I'm lucky to be able to explore, I guess, as things come up. And yeah, it's been a great learning for me. And um, I feel very content, I think, in that particular space. Um, Obviously, it may ebb and change, as it always does. But I think it's a good spot for me at the moment. And what would a normal day look like for you? 
So it's a bit of the sublime to the ridiculous, really. <laughs> um, so I feel like you wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are they predictable? Never. A typical day can be difficult to describe because it's always different and unpredictable, but I guess that's one of the things that draws me to the crisis work. It's like, you know, I'll, you wake up and have a cup of coffee, get ready for work. You've got this grand plan about how your day was going to go, going to get these notes done and call that person back and yada, yada. And then it's just like, bang, oftentimes on the way to work, I'd get a phone call saying, could you just actually meet me at this because we cover two different hospital sites um, where we would do forensic medical examinations with our doctors so I'd be not even getting to <laughs> the, the physical building of my work I'd be going straight to a hospital some mornings and just taking over from the on-call worker to provide support psychosocial support and assessment to the uh, the victim so that <laughs> you know haven't even got to work really of what I'd expected to happen that day but I guess you know a mixed bag of a day could be um, phone call consultation from maybe a, an NGO maybe a 14 year old's disclosed to a staff member at a mental health service that they were sexually assaulted by a family member and support to that um, service around how to do the um, child protection response and then our crisis response within that might get two referrals from different police districts um, wanting us to make contact with perhaps a historical sexual assault or a, um, an adult abuse as a child um, and offer them an assessment and an intake appointment around their options depending on um, what they'd like to do. Um, I might have a um, an intake appointment already booked um, for that day which is really an appointment to do a, a further psychosocial assessment and offer options and pathways because with sexual assault there's I guess there's different avenues and different referral pathways and every everyone's individual and different so depending on time and the nature of the assault and when it occurred and where it occurred it, it opens up different pathways so having a knowledge base around all of those things I guess is part of my day-to-day -day work. Triaging um, a lot of psychoeducation around the legal system and you know responses to trauma and, and understanding symptomology of trauma was a big part of it. Notes, case management, crisis calls, you know parent calling with a five-year-old that's made a first disclosure and just supporting them and, you know, helping them navigate the next steps in terms of helpline, police reporting, um, and whether the matter ends up going to the Joint Child Protection Response Program that we work very closely with in terms of their investigation, the police and, and legal side of things and our health colleagues in that service. It's, yeah, very, it could sometimes literally be all of those things in one day. Um, and then also do your um, mandatory training and do a little bit on your QI project and <laughs> go to a meeting or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, so it was a community health service, I guess, as well. So there's um, an element of travel. So I'd be travelling out to different areas to do the assessments, particularly with vulnerable clients that don't have transport or um, it's not possible for them to come into the major centre where, where our work is, um, the physical building itself. So it's a real mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like then you've kind of taken one aspect of your previous role and really just honed in on it, focused on 
taking someone through the complete process, yeah. not just the emergency response of the sexual assault or the domestic violence. Yeah. And being able to take them through completely from A to Z and then maybe back to A again because yeah. you have yep. a lot of people that would come through that would be repeat, I imagine. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think so my role specifically was to, I guess, assess triage and I developed some more streamlined systems around holding a waiting list and an intake list Um, and then we have a a weekly meeting where clients are kind of fit particular criteria are then allocated to one of six counsellors that we have and um, some people you know don't like some clients don't want that longer term counselling it is just about containing the crisis and supporting the crisis so I generally um, would do a lot of that during the daytime hours and often be receiving a handover from the on-call worker. And, you know, there's, I guess there's a hidden case management role for those cases that don't get allocated for the intake, which is very high acuity. (laughs) It's a very high referral volume that we have in the service. So yeah, we kind of juggle some that would maintain, you know, case management on intake for a little bit until they could be referred to a longer term service. And then, yeah, we'd allocate, I guess we're looking at prioritising recent assault um, new disclosures from children. And we're looking at that relying and, and looking at the psychosocial assessment of need, what other services are already involved, what the young person or the the client wants and needs, what's going to be a good fit for them. So yeah, it's, you know, a lot of communication with the team and allocation each week yeah it's a definitely like I said the sublime to the ridiculous (laughs) yeah but very interesting and rewarding work are you needing to do much after hours work or are you usually deferring to the on-call workers yeah so um generally I don't know what it is is this that the window for the afternoon crisis referral for some reason always seems to be between 1 30 and 3 p.m and the reality is by the time I've received that referral I've done a psychosocial assessment and some crisis intervention um, over the phone and liaised between hospital police client support person helpline I guess really it takes hours and depending on the circumstance but most commonly I'd be referring and setting up the forensic medical examination with the on-call worker and the doctor available on call to come in and and do that component of the work um, and continue that crisis response so um, I was on the on-call roster as well I guess I probably did the least the least amount of on-call actually that I have done to date, I think probably because I was working full time and doing the crisis all through the day. So I was doing about one to two a month. But yeah, I guess a lot of it was during business hours and I'd be referring to on call or, or sometimes staying back if I'd started the you know crisis response and, and I'd been the one to go to the hospital and start facilitating the support for the client while they were having the medical examination for continuity sometimes it was better to stay on and I guess again having a really great manager that really understands the ins and outs of the work time and loo and all those things sometimes you just got to be a little bit flexible around the work day to support the clients the best so yeah. yeah. And how has your work needed to change or adapt with the COVID-19 response? 
So I think like most government um, and essential services, you know, it's it's really um, taken a village. <laughs> and um, I guess I was on the cusp of um, heading out on maternity leave when it really ramped up. But I guess big component of our work is, is counselling and that therapeutic intervention. And as a social worker, we know that that rapport and that nonverbal communication that you get is as important, if not more important sometimes than the actual dialogue. Just being able to mirror that nonverbal and, and regu- help someone regulate and, and be calm if they're particularly having a symptoms of some sort of traumatic response in a session. So like we've had to think very creatively around our service delivery, but I think the councillors are doing a phenomenal job. So a lot of telehealth being set up um, and different platforms, different technology platforms to be able to still be available and and support and deliver those counselling services where possible. Um, Obviously, I think um, as a lot of services screening of clients, just to make sure obviously that we're keeping our health workers safe and the community safe as well in terms of any symptoms, if they were having any symptoms of the disease, screening our clients and really looking at changing or being flexible with our forensic medical response. Um, I know that the managers at the hospital, at our service, um, were in daily meetings with community health manager and the executives at the hospital, along with police and ambulance, talking about, you know, con- like continual conversations about providing frontline crisis responses um, and adapting how we were doing things to make sure that um, it was done safely, but also being able to deliver a, um, a service to the clients where they needed it in those really high vulnerability situations. Mm-hmm. And given that there's so much counselling as part of your role, where do you see it as differing from, say, a psychological support or service? How is yeah. it a social work service? I think one of the fundamental differences, this is just my personal take and it's interesting um, that you asked the question because I actually had a young client ask me recently, I think she's about 18, and she said, oh, so what's the difference between a a social worker and a psychologist? Because she was wanting some counselling around a previous sexual assault. And I guess she, like I view social work as possibly more practical in terms of its theoretical approaches a lot of the underpinnings theoretically are the same you know we we study similar subjects but it's a less uh, I think it it allows it to be more dynamic and flexible in terms of taking different parts of theoretical approaches to trauma and whatever area of work that you're working in um, and adapting it to really suit the client's needs um, and to give them the maximum benefit without putting them into one box. And that's, I I think, what makes our service very unique is that the counsellors are just amazing. They've all trained in myriad different types of counselling practice on top of their social work degrees. So they've all got that fundamental social work practice that I guess is a uniformity to it. But then we have people that specialise in different types of counselling, EMDR and different types of interactive drawing and creative therapies, expressive art therapy, CBT, DBT, lots of different types of practice. So it creates a really diverse team. So, and I think in a psychological service, perhaps there's a less practical approach. It's just that it's that behaviour change 
stuff but I think probably that and I guess the practitioners perhaps don't have the same flexibility as social work perhaps to give that broader case management. It sounds like there are so many ways that you could answer this question but what do you love most about your job? <laughs> it's a good question. I think I love the the diversity. I think it's just such a privilege to be exposed to the human condition in you know such vulnerable settings and to be able to offer someone something to hopefully create a difference on the worst day you know is such a a special thing to be able to do and I think just being able to work with such diverse and amazing people um, is probably the part of it I love the most and that it's it's different every day yeah I think that's probably the part of it I love the most I think the second part of it just the opportunity to work in a team that's so diverse both at this job and my previous one I just I love teamwork um, in terms of that crisis setting I think it's just I don't know it's kind of an electric vibe (laughs) and you just see people that do the most amazing things and as humans I think both working with vulnerability and being vulnerable in the work sometimes as well it's a pretty amazing Thing to be a part of so I really um, do feel it's a privilege to, to do that type of work. And on the other side of the coin what do you find most challenging? I think that uh, I'd probably say you know resourcing referral volume um, and the high acuity burnout is you know it's the, the again the double-edged sword to the crisis work you really have to be so careful about how you manage that kind of stuff I think it's the challenges the things that keep you up at night it's when you're working with such high vulnerability and and safety and risk issues particularly with although I'm working at a sexual assault service we I mean most of what I do is child protection domestic violence is a huge component of the work as well it's that kind of trio of risk and you know constant hypervigilance making sure that you've you've you know left no stone unturned and trying to make sure that you know you've covered those safety and risk issues, I think can really lead you to saturation point, particularly with sexual assault. You know, it is, I guess, the type of work doing it day in, day out. You definitely can get to a saturation point with the referrals. And yeah, it can be challenging just trying to time manage such risky referrals and such such complexity all day can be challenging. Also very rewarding though, so. Yeah, for sure. How do they determine the resources then? Is there some sort of benchmark to say either qualitatively or quantitatively you're at your limit and they need to get some more resources in? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I think specifically for this service, you know, and I I know that a lot of um, health services are moving towards activity-based funding, so they're looking at the amount of activity to then distribute and allocate um, staffing resources and and money, I guess is what it comes down to. You know, you need the money to pay the staff at the right level as well. It's it's complex work and there needs to be a diverse range of skills um, and knowledge opportunities for people starting out their careers. And also we want to retain and attract people that are very experienced um, and knowledgeable in those areas. So yeah, it's like, it's a good question. I think in terms of as I said, in terms of our service, I think at the moment we're still getting, um, a, I guess, a chunk of money and then it's up to the managers to allocate that, you know, where it's needed. But ultimately, um, I think 
there's been a, a consciousness raising, particularly in our culture in Australia, and I know globally as well around violence, abuse and neglect, particularly so that, you know, services and clients that are experiencing difficulty are accessing services, I think, more readily. And really, the goal is to have a, a service where there's no wrong door, I think is the mantra around it. So people can access those services. It doesn't matter where they go, they'll be streamed into the right place. But with that means we will have an increased referral volume, we probably will need more resources. And you know, it's. I think it's a constant challenge to the health system how we redistribute and allocate those resources. I guess it's. I leave it in the hands of the the powers that <laughs> be. <laughs> yeah, to to do that, but it doesn't. Uh, you know, I think it's every everywhere could do with a couple more staff if you ask anyone. <laughs> but um, I think you know we just have to work with what we've got and look at doing some of the QI projects, capturing statistics and data to really show um, and showcase the work that we're doing and the, the benefit really, I think, at the end of the day, that being able to have cold, hard evidence and empirical data to advocate for more resources, more funding is ultimately what gets you the more funding. So people have got to be willing to put their hands up to do that, that extra work. Sure. Um, which is challenging too. And to be supported by their managers yeah. and their team leaders to take time off to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I would assume that a large proportion of your clients would be female given the nature mm-hmm. of the work, but I'm wondering what what sort of referrals do you get for people of different genders or non-binary, for instance, and how that yeah. might change your response? Interestingly, I think with the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse we had a quite a high referral volume of older men coming through the service like I guess for the time that I've been there and and essentially you know the response is the, the same in terms of their psychosocial um, assessment the referral pathways and the counseling and trauma-informed work that we do so and I guess with children there's a um, certainly the the predominant cohort is women across the lifespan that experience sexual assault and sexual abuse but you know we work with children of different genders and actually you know I I guess I have a number of um, transgender clients that interact with the service as well as social workers and um, as a service we have a big commitment to ensuring that we're culturally sensitive and providing services in various you know non-binary gender cohorts so um, I think we're lucky where I am that we have access to appropriate um, referral pathways to support those clients but ultimately we want to be providing that same really comprehensive um, psychosocial assessment to any client that accesses the service but yeah like I think ultimately it's it's the same but also with that awareness of where that person's come from and and different experiences and challenges that they may have come up against in different service settings, whether it be health or or otherwise. And how do you decompress at the end of a long day or long week? What kind of support do you need, especially when you're juggling a lot of responsibility, both in work and outside with your family? I think there's the expectations and reality of what it's what we should and <laughs> should and shouldn't and are and aren't doing um, in the profession. I guess in the professional space, accessing supervision regularly, 
bringing ethical dilemmas and different challenges in the work and unpacking those in a workspace in a healthy and confidential environment is important. But the reality is that most, if not all social workers are aware of, it's sometimes not practical to stick to your supervision plan when you've you're working in a really high acuity workplace with competing demands. However, as I said in the beginning, don't start those bad habits <laughs> early. Really prioritise it because it is a really valuable space to be able to decompress. But I think for me, and certainly I utilise those avenues um, and those channels in the professional environment. But yeah, for me, in the personal space, I really utilize exercise and being outside in nature and getting to the beach is a big outlet for me I love going for a salty swim early in the morning Um, it helps clear my head and just getting the endorphins pumping a bit of a a brisk walk or some you know more formal exercise training or whatever it may be Um, I found those are just really integral parts of my self-care and being around supportive family and I'm just I feel really really lucky that I have that avenue where I am at the moment supportive partner and we live in a beautiful part of the world so I can you know I've got the ocean on one side and the hills in the other so I can utilize those things that I think help shake it off and get your center back find your balance but yeah it's a constant it's not something that you can just say, oh, yeah, that's what I do. I think it's something that takes continual work and effort. It's fluid and, and ongoing and it, I guess it changes as well. I've actually just started <laughs> painting, doing some watercolour painting again as another little side project, which is quite cathartic. Yeah, just, I don't know, everyone has their thing, I guess. But, yeah, for me it's definitely being outside the beach and swimming and laughing and cooking, eating good food looking after your body and your mind sounds great Mm. what would you suggest is a typical career path for someone in this field and are there any other opportunities for advancement I think because social work roles are so diverse I think I mean for me I'm a big advocate of hospital work I think because although I probably describe some of the challenges to the work it's probably the biggest pool of support and structure that you'll get in terms of working in such a an unpredictable space. I am an advocate for crisis jobs in health or in, um, you know, government, even non-government um, agencies. I think the key is having a, a supportive team or, a, you know, a team that has structure and process um, and policy to protect you as a worker. So I think, you know, typically if you can get into a, you know, maybe a mental health role, um, they do a lot of crisis through ACS and things like that, or, you know, emergency department, I think it's a really good starting point to really hone your skills in a supportive way in a team. And then I guess, you know, from that, you get exposed to such a diverse range of referrals as well. And then I know that, um, different um, friends and colleagues of mine that have started in ED have then gone off into completely different parts of the work, as have I. I mean, I've really honed in on the violence, abuse and neglect components um, of it, but some people really enjoy working with the grief and loss, so they've gone into bereavement services and counselling. Others have really enjoyed the homeless um, health component, so um, they're working in community homeless health teams. Mental health is a really interesting 
and diverse part of the work as well and lots of jobs you know and job pathways in mental health so I think yeah starting with something that gives you a platform to have choice um, and just to see what it's all about and then from there I think just naturally we're all fall into different parts of it that are more appealing I guess maybe than others or you have find that you're really really good at something or you've got a particular area of interest so I think from that I know for me I think that I am on a bit of a trajectory to do more education roles in terms of that van space I think that is a good fit for me I really enjoy working with staff to upskill and look at operationally how we're delivering services and supporting our staff to be able to manage those certain situations and I want I feel quite committed to that space of work I want um, our medical and nursing and um, allied health teams to feel supported and skilled um, and upskilled in terms of responding to a disclosure in a session or whatever it may be that we're providing really good interventions um, across the board when responding to violence, abuse and neglect. So I think that's probably a trajectory that I'm heading towards in the future. Yeah, so if you can start broad and then narrow it down as time goes on. You mentioned some changes already in how we use telehealth. Have you seen many other changes in this field over time? I think technology has been a big player even in the last six or seven years. I know that majority of health services now are using um, electronic medical record and typed notes, whereas previously it was a lot of paper base notes and and handwriting. So that's been revolutionary in terms of accessing and sharing information to be able to, I guess, minimise re-traumatisation of clients, particularly in this type of work. Um, So we don't have to ask them over and over what happened to you and da-da-da. I think we can read assessment and have that you know, information at hand. Obviously, there's a whole lot of specifics around confidentiality and with sexual assault, the records are held completely confidentially. Um, They're protected in the medical records so not everyone can see them. But yeah, the advancements in technology have been pretty unreal, I think, Um, not just with the electronic medical notes, but providing services and accessing clients that are in rural areas. I think that's probably been one of the biggest changes to the work there's been a real change and um highlighting in the dv space i think obviously that came with some government changes and recommendations that have gone into place through pilot programs and now are more day-to-day every day in a lot of our responses to domestic violence in the emergency department and in health services so that's been a big change we're doing a lot of screening now in the medical record and asking the questions that we need to ask um, around safety and risk, which I think is really, really amazing too. Real positive change. Yeah. And what impact do you see social work having in the areas of crisis or sexual assault in the next, say, five, ten years? I love crisis work because I think it's integral. Like that, that first response in you know, sexual assault or domestic violence, we can um, top load or front load the resourcing, the response um, in terms of safety and, and psychosocial assessment and support for families and children in those spaces. I think it, in terms of longer term uh, health outcomes and ACEs longer term, if we can, we can put that early intervention in place, I think it's going to completely change 
you know, our welfare um, and health system and different burden that's there at the moment. The health outcomes for women and children, I think, could be dramatically different. Um, obviously, it's a work in progress <laughs> and, um, you know, idea, like everything's, I guess, an ideal situation, an ideal situation or, or circumstance we'd have more money and more resources and more social workers and more crisis housing and things like that. But I think we're definitely moving in the right direction to be able to provide some of those beefed out crisis services, which I hopefully see in the next five to 10 years, we'll we'll start, say, with some of those um, longitudinal studies um, of families, we'll see increased health outcomes and less, you know, depression, anxiety, death and dying at the hands of violence, um, abuse and neglect. So I think we're, we're on the right pathway. And you mentioned when you were just starting out as a social work student, you were really interested in Indigenous youth and community work. Is there any other kind of social work that takes your interest? I think working in Indigenous communities is something that I'll always hope that there's a space for me to, perhaps more so in, I mean, community in the NT I'm working in a, a community at the moment that has a, a big Aboriginal population, so I am really feel really privileged to be able to um, learn from that local knowledge and have that cultural component that I'm always learning from in my work. But I would love an opportunity to do some more, I guess, active community work up in Darwin or, you know, an Aboriginal service um, if the opportunity ever presented itself. But I think in terms of other social work, I guess, perhaps mental health in more of a designated service would be interesting, um, I think, and appealing to me, but probably because or for some of the same reasons that um, the crisis work is, I I would be looking at a crisis (laughs) job. I just love the diversity of it, and I think that really suits me. Yeah, I guess there's just so many, the, the space is changing, and there's so many unknowns, there's so many different professional avenues to go down, but I know certainly that if I was to change careers within this social work field, it would still be something high pressured or diverse in terms of its um, presentation and it would definitely be within the crisis space. Is there any other type of social work that doesn't interest you? I think that I probably am not overly enthused at the community work in terms of community planning and things like that probably doesn't it's not really up my alley I don't know that I'd go into um, disability case management either just because I think just I'm more of a a rapid change kind of person I think it's that's where my my niche is and that longer term case management work I guess doesn't interest me as much I think working on that coalface is really where I see myself mostly but yeah no desk or or long-term research jobs for me I don't think or long-term case management I think yeah (laughs) I need it fast paced and rapidly changing to keep my interest and attention and yeah I think that's the the work I I enjoy doing the most. Mm -hmm. And are you able to tell me about the QI projects you're working on it sounds like there was something to do with responding to disclosure as one of them. Yeah, so I um the one that I worked on last year with a colleague of mine and alongside the manager of the service was looking at our response to adults abused as children 
um, I guess, because there's different priorities within the service and with a high acuity service, I think we were getting a lot of these referrals through, I think, as I said, particularly because people were access or looking to see what support was available after the Royal Commission and while that was happening. And really, as crisis service predominantly um, with a really high referral volume, really it was limited in what we could offer. Really it was a psychosocial assessment supporting people to do police statements if they were wanting to pursue that legal process, but really look then looking at referring them on to longer-term counselling services with capacity to do that kind of um, longer-term counselling. But it didn't feel like we were perhaps giving the full response that we could have. I, I think also I said earlier that as a social worker, you want to be giving as much as possible, um, particularly to someone presenting to a service for the first time, you know, whether it be in crisis or not, you want to be giving a holistic intervention. And they were the seventh priority for our service. So uh, I guess we looked at developing um, a model of care that was uniform and that gave perhaps a more holistic approach and a more a more continuity. So we actually hired a, a one two social worker two days a week and all the referrals from adult survivors went through to her Mm. and she would do the psychosocial assessment anything crisis any acute crisis needs I would still respond to in her absence and and manage the referral and had oversight of all the referrals but yeah she was able to offer up to four face-to-face sessions um, as opposed to really the one that we were able to do before and just do that initial psychosocial um, assessment of need and psychoeducation around the legal system and options that were available to that person and just give that additional support and that case management time where it was needed. And it was amazing, I think, for multiple reasons that allowed it freed up time for the intake worker, myself, to be able to respond to those higher acuity matters, crisis matters. And also it gave that cohort um, a more consistent response and more holistic. And we had really good feedback. We did some pre and post surveys, both with our staff um, and the clients. And overall, I think, you know, not just the, you know, the feedback was excellent from the, the clients, but also when we looked at the numbers, it was a huge amount of work that was being done that had previously just been held by myself alongside all those crisis issues. So it meant that, I guess, from a, a day-to-day, you know, time management perspective as well, I was able to manage my time a lot better. And um, we could, yeah, I think overall, we just were able to provide a better service to the, the all the clients that were coming to the service so the project ran for about nine months I think and we recently actually just yesterday I got some feedback um, in an email from the QR committee that overall it was a really successful project and um, unfortunately we weren't successful in um, we, we applied for some additional funding that came through from the as a result of the Royal Commission we weren't successful in in obtaining it but there's components of our project that we've kind of continued with at work and I think the area that was successful um, in gaining the funding are developing a model that will be rolled out throughout health to respond to that cohort of clients so that was really awesome. That's a really great example of how the research you've been doing has a direct impact on potential resource development. 
Yeah, and the one more recently that I've worked on was with the senior health clinician over at the Joint Child Protection Response Program. So that's the program that's comprised of DCJ, police and health, responding to physical abuse and sexual abuse matters from the JRU. And so what happened was... I guess the local response for local matters that weren't needing an acute response when you make a helpline report in relation to sexual abuse specifically, they get triaged down at a round table of different professionals, health and facts and police, and then they get sent on different pathways of potential pathways for response and sexual assault were one of those pathways um, when it didn't go to JCPRP that Joint Protection Response Program. And so that was another component of my work would be screening and responding to those referrals and liaising with police and the families to offer a psychosocial response where needed. And in around September, October last year, the JRU expanded their criteria, which basically meant that some referrals that would have ordinarily gone through to the Joint Child Protection Response Program for initial response were then being filtered out to the the local PACs, we call them, the Police Area Commands, and the SAS, the Sexual Assault Service, along with DCJ, which is the former FACS. They've changed their name again. (laughs) So now we're DCJ, Department of Communities and Justice. So really what that meant was that we had an increased referral volume and also some challenges around safety and risk in terms of wanting to know whether a family were aware a report had been made and who was making the first contact because FACS and or DCJ and police are statutory bodies so they they can make that call whereas health aren't protected in the same way. So what we did was myself and the senior health clinician, we basically developed a workflow pathway for our SAS workers and developed the relationships and the partnerships with the triage workers and the key players at the police in the various local districts to be able to respond appropriately to those referrals without starting from scratch because I think in this type of work it was it's quite political sometimes when you're working across multiple districts multiple police stations and different fax offices that are all you know under resourced and overwhelmed with referrals as we all are we really needed to establish um, rapport and network and professional relationships so that there was a clear workflow to be able to look at a referral and say, I'll call this person, this person, this person, cover it off, see what everyone was doing and then formulate a response, which was challenging in some respects. But I think we were able to do a really um, good job of it because of our solid professional relationships with those agencies in different areas. So what we just developed before I went on leave was a workflow, which we sent off to two or three different local area commands and um, detective sergeants and triage workers at FACS um, and the the managers there so that they all have the same information as SAS and we have each other's contact numbers um, and there's a very clear workflow that we're all using uniformly which I think I don't know that any other districts have done the same thing in New South Wales so we were um, yeah really fortunate that we were able to pull that together and get that working which ultimately the outcome is that there's a faster more streamlined response to those referrals and um, there's an actual pathway which there wasn't before. Has it been challenging for you 
taking extended leave knowing that you've got both the crisis clinical work that will never stop and you'll have certain people that you'll probably need to hand over because there'll be people that you're working with longer term as well as the QI work that you're doing and feeling like you want to hand that over to someone who can really Mm -hmm. keep it going. Yeah, I think I was really lucky that both QI projects came to a natural resolution just before I went on leave. I think it would have been tricky for me to have put that effort and time and commitment in and, and have to hand it over or put it on ice for that time. But Fortunately, I was able to wrap those up, um, one at the end of last year and the JRU workflow pathway more recently. So that was fortunate. Um, So I had a bit of closure there. But otherwise, I guess in terms of the intake work, it's a changing space and it will look completely different. I was trialled as a single worker that the role used to be um, handed over to a different clinician every single day. And so my, you know, being in it, as a single worker for the 18 months that I have been was the first time that had ever been done. And so I've developed, you know, a number of workflow pathways, different professional relationships, and um, really took it upon myself to understand the technology in the AMR, which is a new system, and look at utilising it um, as efficiently as possible to make sure that we were not double handling processes because, you know, I guess we're we're moving towards a a technology future um, in terms of our health services and being able to provide more streamlined and efficient services is, you know, in light of diminished resources always is the, the challenge to the work. I really just had to I think psychologically let go of it'll be what it'll be and I just did my best to do a comprehensive handover of that list and know that there will be some clients that are still there still coming through the service may still be there and engaged when I get back and just I think it's hard on one hand I just you know you hang on for dear life to all these processes but at the end of the day like it's a changing space and each clinician's going to put their own you know, spin on it. And hopefully the common thread is that the clients are getting an efficient and responsive and supportive service. And if we can maintain those fundamentals, I think hopefully um, we'll be building, you know, a service that in the future is going to deliver an efficient response to those clients. Mm-hmm. If people are interested in knowing a little bit more about your area of practice, where would you direct them? I know that New South Wales Health have um, a lot of different policies and procedures and things like that and documentation. I don't know how much of it's accessible, but in general, in terms of trauma and crisis, Bruce Perry is an, an amazing you know, trauma worker and um, Gabor Mattel is amazing. And more specifically in health, there's ECAV are an amazing organisation that I highly would recommend anyone that's looking at moving into the area of violence, abuse and neglect or trauma specifically. A lot of, in fact, all of the health workers that work in the van space do some sort of training through ECAV and they're based in Sydney. In terms of other avenues, I think even accessing your um, local clearing warehouses through the universities. There's often some really amazing clinicians, social workers, um, and otherwise that have been working in the trauma and crisis space for a long time and have moved into research and education roles. And even, you know, 
if it's possible, contacting the managers at the Violence, Abuse and Neglect Service. They're always looking to keen and enthusiastic workers or people that are social workers or people that are looking to move into that space. So depending on their workload and things like that, I know that they're usually happy if there's time organised to talk through the type of work and opportunities that are coming up in the service. And yeah, I think that they're a good source of information. Yeah, local hospital social workers are usually they're usually under the pump, but I think mostly will always make time where they can to have a chat about what they do because they're usually really passionate and committed and and want to share the work um, and the amazing stuff that people are doing. So I wonder if I can convince you to dig out that story you were talking about about your emergency social work experience. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll have to have a look for it. I'll I think it's it's on an old laptop. It's stored away somewhere. I'll see if I can find it. And obviously, check if it's something you can share I don't know what the content is yeah I'll have to have a look at it if I can find it watch this space I'll let you know if I can dig it up at some stage (laughs) I think social work in this area especially around domestic violence and sexual assault is one of the more known areas of social work Mm -hmm. I think it probably comes to mind when a lot of people talk about social work Are there portrayals in media or like shows or movies that you feel really get it right or really get it wrong and you're just cringing, like yelling at the screen? (laughs) I think that there's a lot of stereotyping, obviously, that happens in lots of different professions. But I think one space that really they get it wrong (laughs) a lot is the law and orders and the whatever kind of Americanized you know, portrayal of the child protection system and that social workers are there to snatch the kids away is really inaccurate. I work with two child protection counsellors at my service. We're co-located with them and they are just the most amazing people, like truly. Um, And the facts workers that I know, they just really, it's about keeping the families together, supporting individuals to make good choices and and address their own trauma and it's it's so inaccurate the the, you know the baby snatching (laughs) um or the you know we're gonna the kids are being pulled out of the house screaming kind of scenario is such an extreme example and stereotype that's completely inaccurate but I think you're probably right in that domestic violence I think we're seeing more and more the value and the place of social work in terms of that practical and psychosocial support and also the trauma-informed counselling that's being delivered. I think that it's really tricky with the crisis work in the hospital. I think it's the social work is quite hidden. It's difficult to always show because you're you're not doing a medical in- intervention. It's something so personal, like you're actually sometimes sitting on the floor with someone that's just been told that their child's committed suicide or whatever it is in these really traumatic scenarios That's it's, it is a, an intimate and a private space. And it's really difficult to explain the tangibility of that intervention that you're doing in terms of your crisis response, your words, your verbal, non-verbal. So I think it's more tricky to show (laughs) accurately. Absolutely, it is difficult to measure. I mean, how can you measure, other than the time it took you to do it, the difference that the impact you made in that person's life change it had in their experience of that horrific event? 
in the Easter comments. You're not exactly going to survey them. <laughs> yeah. More often, if they don't come back, you know that you've probably done something Exactly, wrong. exactly. The devil's in the detail and I think no response sometimes is the best type of response. But, yeah, certainly I just think in general child protection gets a bad rap. It really does cop a bad rap and it's not accurate, I don't think, at all to the actual really amazing work that's being done with families in, and young people. I recently went to a um, farewell of our team leader of the child protection team in the area where I work and she'd been doing the work for, you know, 30 years and she just told a couple of stories that were just unbelievable, just phenomenal work across different cultures. She talked about working with a, a Chinese family with seven children that um, had fled, you know, some unrest um, in a province where they were living and they come to Australia. And she just did this incredible long-term counselling and casework and advocacy with this family. And that's the real, that's the accurate picture, I think, about the work. It's, yeah, it's very different to how it's portrayed in the media. Yeah, it's what you don't see. Yeah, exactly. The value is. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with social workers or potential social workers out there about your experience? I think all I'd say is from a practical piece of wisdom about applying for jobs and, you know, having a set idea about what you, which pathway you think you'll go down. I think one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given in terms of applying for jobs and interviews and things like that, and I think I touched on it a bit earlier, was that really the interview starts before you even get anywhere near the actual panel that you're going before. It's contacting the contact person. It's understanding and researching the organisation and just, you know, being yourself and being honest, but also, yeah, just doing those extra things, rereading your application and looking for spelling mistakes and have I really answered the question and using real life examples or transferable skills just because you haven't worked in that particular area doesn't mean you don't have the skills you know you can learn like a lot of things you learn on the job but if you can't kind of speak to that transferable skill set you know that's the biggest weapon I think of the, the the social work toolbox is you know it being adaptable and flexible so I think if you can do those things in your application and be open when you actually start a job, open to different avenues and possibilities, I think you'll really be surprised at where things can take you because I think, as I said, I never expected in my wildest dreams that I would be loving and doing crisis work. I would have told you to rack off when <laughs> I was a student. I did not at all think it was where I would end up. And it was because of I trusted the supervisors I had on my placements. And I guess I just trusted my gut as well to allow myself to have a go and, and see what it was like and it's been really amazing and life-changing and rewarding so you just gotta go with that sometimes <laughs> yeah I also think it's really important in an interview setting to to not be shy or modest because no one else yeah. is holding back and no. you're really there to promote your work and your experience and why you're passionate about working for that organization so don't be afraid to to demonstrate that you've done your research and that you yeah. can see the application of your skills to that setting. Yeah, absolutely. 
but I know that's hard as a younger social worker, especially for you, it would have been nerve wracking just starting and thinking, Mm. I know what I'm doing and I know the value of social work in this setting, but what do I have to offer ahead of someone else who might have more experience? Exactly. Uh, And I think being a keen learner and, you know, being modest in your, you know, the way that you are measured in your responses and um, your openness to learning and, and, and also not like being confident in the skills you do have, but also being open to all the learnings that are to come. I think employers want to know that they've got people that are motivated to learn and to continue learning because the profession is not static you know so many different parts of it are always changing um, and being open to furthering yourself professionally and continuing to um, adapt and build on your skills and knowledge will be forever so I think being open to those things and willing is really important. I might also put some links, like a glossary at the end, because there are so many acronyms. I've got EHAB, ACS, DCJ, JRU, SAS, PAC. I might just put a little bit of a blurb at the end of the show notes so people can go away and look those up and get a sense of how they fit into the context. Yeah. I can um, send through some links to some of my personal favourites in terms of professional learning around the area of trauma, um, the Gabor Martel Australian Childhood Conference. Mm, And Bruce Perry you mentioned. Yeah, Bruce Perry and some others that um, I kind of really resonate with in some of my practice, even some of the crisis models that I kind of use as a go-to as well. I can send you through some of those if people are interested. Yeah, that would be amazing. That's kind of it. Thank you so much for coming on board and for sharing your experience. And no it's such an inspiration to especially younger social workers who are starting out and feeling as though, you know, they've got all this passion and really want to be able to use their knowledge that they've picked up at university or in placements, but they just really don't know where to start. And it's okay not to know where you're heading right away. Yeah, absolutely. You've just got to trust in the process sometimes, which is scary, but it also, I think, brings the best reward as well at the end of it. So and it's an amazing career. Like I said, I feel like I was so lucky that I didn't become a teacher. <laughs> um, no disrespect to, to teaching, but I just think for me, it was a just, yeah, I was just dumb luck. <laughs> and I feel really fortunate that I found something that I'm so passionate about. I think you're going to be able to apply your passion for education to your social work practice anyway. (la) Exactly. I've kind of got the best of both worlds. So again, really lucky. Yeah. Thanks for joining me this week. If you would like to continue this discussion or ask anything of either myself or Sophie, please visit my anchor page at anchor.fm slash socialworkspotlight. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email swspotlightpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please also let me know if there is a particular topic you'd like discussed, or if you or another person you know would like to be featured on the show. Next episode's guest is Astrid. Astrid has more than 31 years of experience, predominantly working for the Commonwealth Department of Human Services, having worked in 18 Centrelink offices, both in Victoria and New South Wales, mostly supporting customers face-to-face and more recently within a call centre environment. 
Astrid has also performed other roles within Centrelink, such as job capacity assessor and an eight-month stint as a case manager in the aftermath of the 2009 Black Saturday bushfire disaster. She has also worked for Mission Australia and an employment services provider doing job capacity assessment and vocational rehabilitation, respectively. I release a new episode every two weeks. Please subscribe to my podcast so you're notified when this next episode is available. See you next time. Thank you.